1: It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, and this is episode number 225. Today, we sit down with Dr. Jim Eubanks. Dr. Eubanks is a physical medicine and rehabilitation doctor, aka PMNR, or physiatrist, depending on the nomenclature you're more familiar with. Basically, that means he's an expert in musculoskeletal medicine. Today, in this podcast, we talk about pain management, exercise promotion in the clinic, the medical system in the United States, and much, much more this podcast is brought to you by pioneer belts at pioneer belts they have belts for all applications if you're interested on how belts work or how to choose a belt check out our podcast episode number 219 most people will do best with a four inch wide belt that's 10 millimeters thick either single prong or lever depending on the fastening mechanism that you prefer pioneer has industry exclusive micro adjustments on their lever belts for ease of use without tools they also make custom belts to your specs depending on what you want Trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes, choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Head to GeneralLeatherCraft.com and tell them Barbell Medicine sent you. This podcast is also brought to you by Viore. Viore makes super high-quality, versatile clothing to wear both inside and outside of the gym for men and women. Again, my favorite are the core shorts and the rise tee. I've been super impressed with the core shorts and their longevity for now about four months that I've been training in them. No pilling, no tears. They're super stretchy. And honestly, they look great both inside and outside the gym. Same thing with the Rise tee. Every time I wash it, it comes out of the laundry, perfect, ready to wear, whether I'm again I'm going to the gym or just wearing it casually. So check them out. Uh, they also have golf stuff. If you're a golfer and you're wondering, hey, uh, what sort of stuff could I wear on the course uh, that would double, you know, in my day-to-day life. It's Really, really good stuff. It looks clean and, uh, you know, look good, feel good, play well. That's uh, that's my motto. So go to Viore. Uh, all of their sources are sustainable and they offset their carbon footprint 100%. You can go to their website, viori.com backslash barbell and get 20% off your first order. All right, we're here on episode 225 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast with a very special guest. I'm super excited about this one. It's Dr. Jim Eubanks. Jim, what's what's going on, man?
0: Well, it's great to be here. I'm really excited about some of the topics that uh, we'll talk about tonight. Um, spine and musculoskeletal medicine is an um, I- important um, topic in my professional life, and I think there's a lot going on in this space that's uh, worth discussing. So, Thanks for having me on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's like Twitter bringing people together. I've like been it a is. fan for a long time and Austin and I reference your stuff and share your tweets quite frequently. And then I'm like, oh, cool. We get to hang out finally. So this is just bringing bros together. I love I love Twitter. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so for our, our audience who may or may not uh, be as familiar with you, um, can you just give you give us like a brief sort of CV like what's been your education so far and, and what do you do now?
0: sure yeah a lot of education so i <laughs> i was um i was a philosophy major in undergrad i went to Furman in greenville south carolina planning to uh pursue graduate school uh, but always had an interest in healthcare. and i got i got really sick um my spring of uh, high school year was pretty sick in undergrad and pivoted back towards health care um But I was sort of being hospitalized intermittently, knew I wasn't quite in good shape for medical school, knew two really good family friends growing up who were chiropractors. Mm. And these are the kind that would see you like three times, right? And then tell you, get active, get out there and do what you want to do in life. Um, That was my exposure. So I um, had never actually met a physical therapist prior to going to chiropractic school. So this was a, this was a while ago, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, a bit older having taken this uh, circuitous route, but went to chiropractic school in St. Louis at uh, Logan university.
1: Very, that's my hometown. Very
0: familiar. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Spent four years out there. Um, pretty early on started to realize that chiropractic had some, uh, skeletons in its closet. Mm-hmm. Right. Sure. And, uh, struggled with that quite a bit at one point wanted to stop. Um, I dragged my, my now wife, actually, it was good for her. She had got a scholarship at Wash U and finished out her education. Nice. So it was, it was a nice move for her, but, um, kept on with chiropractic finished, moved back to Charlotte, North Carolina, where I had gone to high school and lived for most of my life, even though I have bounced around a bit, um, got into practice with one of these chiropractors who I mentioned that I really respected. And um, I I jokingly say that he made the mistake of a month before I start introducing me to the local um, spine conference that was held uh, by Ortho Carolina, which is the big orthopedic practice. Um, For many years, it's been the largest in the country, actually. And the person speaking that day was a guy named Craig Brigham, who was the spine fellowship director and just an outstanding educator. And me, you know, being out of school um, just a few months, I hear this spine surgeon, orthopedic spine surgeon talking about biopsychosocial care. Oh, boy. And I was dumbfounded, (laughs) right? Because you're told that, you know, hey, it's medicine. Physicians don't know anything about that. Right. And and boy, was I wrong. And so I went up to him afterwards. I said, can I come spend time with you? At first he was shocked that a chiropractor wanted to spend time with him, but the rest is history. He became my mentor. Um, at the same time I started getting really healthy again. And it was, uh, pretty clear that despite being in a good situation from a chiropractic standpoint, me being able to focus on, you know, behavior change and, um, sort of lifestyle uh, interventions. Uh, I was still at a deficit when it came to leadership and having an impact on sort of the bigger direction of things in spine. And so that's why I made the decision. Craig Brigham um, had a really good friend named Jim Rainville in Boston. Jim Rainville uh, was a physiatrist who was running – a, an exercise-based back program at New England Baptist Hospital. And I went and spent a summer, uh, several weeks with him and uh, immediately said, you know, that's, that's what I want to be doing because he had the cultural authority to get his messaging across to people and colleagues in ways that, you know, I felt were important.
1: Wow. That's, I mean, obviously a series of not only great opportunities, but also just networking and, and sort of this obvious thirst for knowledge and skills right. and and to have a big impact. I mean, you noted several times along your journey so far that you had yeah, things were going fine, but <laughs> still had this kind of fire to do to do a little more. And I think you know, that's been my general impression of your whole journey because it, it, it didn't stop after that, you know, that kind of just teed you up to, all right, well, here's my next, uh, well, what, seven or eight years of education, (laughs) right? So, so you're in Boston for summer. This is, do you remember what year this was?
0: Oh, this was 2011.
1: Yeah. Okay. And so then you're like, well, I got to get out of the Cairo game and I got to go to medical school. What was the time interval from like then to actually putting your application in and then going to medical school?
0: Yeah. So, you know, you have to get your life in order. And, and um, my now wife uh, was a critical care nurse at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I ended up leaving chiropractic um, about 18 months after I got out of school. Wow! And I went and worked with Ortho Carolina's Research Institute, which was um, an arrangement that uh, was made to sort of fill that gap between um, preparing to go back to medical school. Because as you know, um, I had to take the MCAT. Um, mm-hmm. There were actually a few classes that I had to retake because it had been 10 years since <laughs> I made the, uh, you know, I made another mistake, which was I took all of my, a lot of my pre-med coursework as a freshman oh, boy. in college. Mm-hmm. And so it had just expired And this at the time was important to some schools. Um, so I retook a few classes. I took the MCAT. And um, I was working for North Carolina's Research Institute, actually developing musculoskeletal guidelines for industry, so like mm-hmm. insurance companies, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I became very familiar with uh, the um, official disability guidelines, like ODG, Cochrane reviews. You know, we would use this as a way of sort of sifting through, you know, what's evidence-based and what's not, and then we would develop um, with industry software these very interesting and kind of um, uh, intricate uh, pathways through which decisions would be made for different kinds of care within musculoskeletal medicine. And so it was really good for me, because I was learning the mechanics behind medicine that actually much later now, um, after my training in medicine has become important again to some of the work that I do. Uh, and so, yeah, that's, I, I, went back to school. Now, tragically, my mentor, Craig Brigham passed away unexpectedly two weeks before I took the MCAT. Oh, um, and, uh, this is a guy who was, a uh, decathlete and, and held the U S high school record for 30 years from Eugene, Oregon wow. until 2012 when it was broken. Um, you know, competed with Bruce Jenner at the time, Bruce Jenner. Um, and, uh. So that was that was uh, uh, it had a major impact on me, but it was also a sort of ignition to a a new enthusiasm and excitement that I had to sort of carry forward some of the work that he was trying to do.
1: Yeah, I I can I can imagine, especially it's really interesting that you, you you came to medicine with not only the professional sort of education prior through chiropractic school, but then also like you know a big research background and applied research you know so it's not like you're in a lab just pouring plates or something like that and right. staining and stuff it's like no we're gonna actually develop guidelines and sort of uh, integrate all of this stuff so it's a lot of reading synthesizing information putting it together and then you know distributing it on a way at scale in a way that you know ideally is effective so so this is like 2012. Your Life is in order. You've applied. Where did you you end up going to medical so school? So I week? went
0: to East Carolina. Okay, ECU. Which, yep, ECU, which at the time had the lowest tuition in the country.
1: Mm-hmm. It
0: was a state school. It, it worked out really well from that standpoint. You know, not adding a lot of financial burden.
1: Sure. I think yeah. I remember. I remember the AMCAS. So, if, if the listeners, so for applying to medical school, you can get at the time when I applied. So back, it was about the same time, 2011 ish, 2010 ish, something like that. Uh, you get that AMCAS book. It was like a handout or like a you know thin paperback book, and uh, it, it, it had all the medical schools, the cost for in state, out of state, or whatever. And yet, yeah, ECU was like the lowest cost one, but they didn't take hardly anybody from out of state. And so I'm like. All right, I can't really apply there in good faith, but I wanted I wanted to. Now nowadays, it's NYU because their education's free, so right. I would I would have been hard up on trying to get into NYU. But uh, it is interesting. Austin and I, Dr. Baraki and I, went to the same medical school, and his cost of attendance was less than half of mine. And I'm like, just based on geography, me being from St. Louis, him being from Virginia, and so you know, it's a it it's some in some ways it's a game and got to play it and. So you ended up at ECU, you do your medical school, uh, and we could actually do a whole podcast on like what it's like to go to medical school. as like a non-traditional sort of student, yeah, you know, that's right. uh, but, uh, we'll, we'll focus on what you're doing now. Cause I think that's far more interesting, uh, to our, to our audience. So you went there, um, so if this is like you graduated what 15 or 16 from med school
0: uh so no actually 18 so i had i, I worked um with ortho carolina research institute for a few years actually oh, okay. and 2014 is when i went to ecu okay yeah. yes
1: so in 18 so uh, i i got done in 16 and it i remember considering what you ended up going into which is pmnr which stands for pain mm-hmm. management and rehabilitation or also known sure. as physiatry uh And when I was, and and
0: actually, yeah, it's it's funny because that's what a lot of us end up doing. But it's actually physical medicine and rehabilitation.
1: Oh yeah, sorry, I mean, yeah, a lot of folks do go into pain medicine. Yeah, yeah, it's one of the fellowships. Yeah, (laughs) might as well be called that. Yeah. No that's yeah that's my gaffe on that but uh it's interesting when i was considering different residencies right i'm like okay ortho if i wanted to do surgery that's kind of what i was thinking or i could do sports medicine through like family or internal or right. i could do pm&r and then the common question everyone gets is like <laughs> what the heck is (laughs) PMNR and what do they do? And then at the time it had this like mythical character characterization to it. Like, well, nobody knows what the PMNR docs do. They just exist and seem like they're happy. So maybe uh, talk to one of them if you're curious about it. So that, I think this would actually be interesting to our, our uh, audience. What is a PMNR doc and what do you, what do you guys, what do you guys do?
0: Yeah. Excellent question. Um, So physical medicine and rehabilitation, PM&R or physiatry, is focused on medical conditions that really um, orient around the neurologic and musculoskeletal system. And so, you know, as non-operative physicians, that can be MD or DO, there is this um, focus on diagnosis, treatment, and management of injuries and illnesses and conditions that really affect function which is mm-hmm. the neuromuscular, you know, system. And so since a lot of those are permanent or chronic, there is this longitudinal focus on quality of life and really, you know, that health span space. Um, and so in terms of what we might end up doing within that field, it's it's quite varied. So you can do fellowships in brain injury medicine, which is in sort of an inpatient more inpatient focused, even though they have outpatient clinics like concussion. Mm -hmm. Um, Hospice and palliative medicine, you can do a fellowship in that, neuromuscular and electrodiagnostic medicine, pain medicine, as you mentioned, pediatric rehab, a lot of congenital disorders, cerebral palsy, um, spinal cord injury medicine, and sports medicine, as we also touched on uh, a bit earlier. There's also now cancer rehab. So because folks are living longer um, after diagnosis of cancer and they are being treated with different types of um, therapies that can actually in, impact their function, uh, that has become a, a really popular avenue to take within PMNR. and um, And so, you know, we work very closely in teams. And so from an inpatient side of things where we do inpatient rehab, that has become more and more acute. And so what that means is that we get sicker and sicker patients moving from, you know, acute floors into inpatient rehab. And um, they may still be on oxygen therapy or, you know, have a trach or be vented. Um, And so we're working with those patients. Um, Transplants is is a big area now. Um, and so it's, it's a really exciting way to train with the orientation being, um, optimizing function.
1: Yeah, that's been my general sense of things. Obviously I didn't, I ended up in family, uh, you know, three-year residency PM and R four-year residency. And it seems like a lot of folks are specializing doing some sort of fellowship training afterwards. Um, but it it was always like PM and R those are like, those are the, the people really concerned with musculoskeletal function and health, uh, of that organ system, you know, in addition to like, how does that impact somebody's quality of life? And so if there was another non-operative sort of, uh, field of training that I identified with, I was like, PM and folks are my, are my people. Um, yes. so is it, is it similar to ortho and that a lot of people are go, doing fellowship? Like it's almost mandatory to do a fellowship after training or they're like, is there like a general physiatrist that, Hey, we do a little bit of everything and, uh, we're out here, not as cowboys, meaning that they don't have much, you know, a lot of training in the specific stuff, but, uh, I just, I'm unclear on like how, what the current state of things are.
0: Sure. Yeah. There's, so there's a decent number of people that do fellowship now. Um, but there are certainly general physiatrists that do not, and they will cover everything from general inpatient rehab, which can be, um, some brain injury, spinal cord injury, stroke rehabilitation is a big one that they will address. Um, and then they do a lot in the outpatient space with like, um, prosthetics and orthotics and Mm. amputee care, um, disability or impairment assessments, um, you know, medical legal considerations, spasticity management in a lot of these, um, neurologic, uh, cases. And so, There's a there's a good mix of folks and it tends to be that, you know, when you're in a city or a tertiary or sort of quaternary um, hospital setting, you're going to have more of the people with fellowships. And then as you go out into the community, you're going to have more generalists. Um, Yeah. And a lot of us, even with fellowships, are still doing electrodiagnostic medicine. So that's something I will should be spending a day a week um, as an attending next year uh, doing that, too.
1: Okay. Yeah. I mean, like when I first learned about PM&R as a potential residency, I was like, oh, this is, this is cool. Because the way I view things, particularly with respect to like musculoskeletal function, it's like you have generally healthy folks who effectively do not need medical care for any musculoskeletal related sort of condition. So those folks, with respect to exercise, the biggest thing is exercise prescription and promotion let's get these people active then there's like another higher level of care which is likely physical therapists um you know and, and who have there's some special needs with respect to all right how can these folks exercise in a way that's productive uh, and maybe gets them back to this unrestricted sort of movement. Uh, maybe an injury, surgery, they're coming back from that, something like something like that. And then there's another level of care where folks have either chronic medical conditions and they need, you know, additional uh, level of sort of interpretation of where their current state is and what they can do, they likely need an mm-hmm. MD on board, which could be a sports medicine, could be someone like myself or Dr. Baraki who just, through our own interests, have kind of – amassed this fund of knowledge and then finally there's a whole nother level it's like look these are some things that you will not see without the sort of specialized training where your patient population is self-selected that you get to see folks with a lot of spinal cord injuries for example post-stroke uh you know uh people who have prosthetics and these adaptive athletes and and things of that nature and that's kind of right in your wheelhouse but for you personally what is your like day-to-day sort of your average patient and like, how do they get to you? Are they like, we want to go see Dr. E we want to go see, uh, or, or, or are they getting referred through primary care or like how do? what's your average patient and how do they, how do they get to you?
0: Yeah. Excellent question. So I, I, I so I'm finishing up a fellowship year actually in spine and value-based, um, care. Um, and so I work in a clinic, a pretty novel clinic that's, uh, sort of a population health model within the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center system, UPMC. And so it's called the Program for Spine Health. And it's really interesting because we try to capture high-risk patients for the system and deliver the kinds of care that the evidence suggests we should be doing, but has been very difficult for many to actually implement. Um, we get additional resources from the health system to do this work. And so that's my clinic. So, as a physiatrist, I am seeing about 60% of the patients that are referred into this pathway. Now, 90% or so are actually starting with PTs. Mm-hmm. And so, a lot of the physical therapists, we have a, so the, we'll talk about probably at some point um, cognitive functional uh, therapy, mm-hmm. CFT. And so we have had this system in place for um, several years now, at least since 2018, where we're training physical therapists and chiropractors um, in extra weekend coursework to focus only on spine care. And um, we use those graduates in our program. And so they only do spine and they have, you know, one-on-one time with patients. So it's not disrupted by the unfortunate, um, you know, multi-patient creep that occurs, you know, in many therapy settings. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's by design. And if patients aren't doing well with PT, they need further diagnostic workup or they're more complicated. For example, if they have um, a degenerative scoliosis and clear uh, ridiculopathy, Um, and maybe there's some discernment that needs to happen in terms of what the primary issue is for them. Then they'll see one of us in the physiatry realm within this program. And so that's what I do. Most of my patients are complicated. They're not your average. I've had back pain for two weeks. Patient. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's what I kind of wanted to instill upon people is that by the time folks make it to you, it, things have either been more longstanding or or the evolution has become complicated. It's not, you know, I tweaked my back in the gym. It's been 10 days. Yeah, I need this referral to physiatry. It's more like, yeah, so I've had this waxing and waning low back pain that's really impacted my function for like six months. I've done PT numerous episodes and just haven't really gotten resolution. And so now we're thinking, is there additional things going on that need to be worked up? Uh, and then you guys are the experts in that amongst many other things things. But it's not like, uh, again, just relatively straightforward sort of presentation and management that we see every day. It's just more complicated, I think.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so this is um, something that we're, uh, you know, seeing within our program, again, by design, we have partnered with primary care and many spine surgeons, both orthopedic and neurosurgery, um, to know, who to send to us and when to send to us. And so uh, most of our, interestingly, um, a a very large percent of our referrals come from spine surgeons who were inappropriately sent patients that don't have, you know, problems that need to be surgurized, right? Oh, interesting. And so they have learned through this program uh, that they have a place they can now send patients to and they love it. So our spine care, you know, our spine surgery partners are some of the most satisfied in terms of this. Um, you know, our, our main goal is to restore function. We're not a, a quote pain management clinic.
1: Yeah, despite you know? me messing up the name, <laughs> <It's> not-
0: <laughs> <laughs> there's plenty of pain management within, you know, physiatry, but our clinic specifically does focus more on the, the functional issues. Um, we have, a, an, an amazing team of people. We have, you know, spine nurses, We have spine PTs, as mentioned, we have the physiatry team, we have health coaches and nutritionists, we have pain psychology, um, and then our allied partners, you know, those we refer to and get referrals from. And so it's really a matter of knowing what the patient needs at that moment to best um, organize a care process for them that's going to work to achieve their goals. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So if you if you guys are listening to this and you're like wow you know all the the integration with an interdisciplinary team and multiple different approaches to making sure the person's performing at their best leading the highest quality of life that that sounds like barbell medicine that sounds like what you guys were getting it's like <laughs> well yeah that's why we have we're having Dr. Eubanks on the podcast um, okay it, story time I was driving in my truck we we're going to the motocross track with my dad right mm-hmm. and he looks at me and he goes you uh you ever heard of a uh, physiatrist. You know uh, what that is? And I was like, yes, what's going on, Leonard? (laughs) It's like out of nowhere. He's like, oh, yeah, well, you know, this neck pain I've been having for the last year or so. And I was like, wait, wait, you've had neck pain for a year. Like he just never (laughs) says anything. Uh, But it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, because he had seen his primary care doc. He'd been referred to PT all without telling me, which is very on brand for my dad. Uh, And then he had gotten a referral to an orthopedic surgeon, um, for a surgery consultation per his primary care doctor. And then, uh, you know, the, the surgeon appropriately referred him to PM&R because yeah, as you mentioned earlier, it was going to be an inappropriate sort of surgical case had he had gone through with that. So I was like, good. Okay. Well, you know, it seems like people are getting more up on this. And when I say people, I just mean, uh, healthcare professionals, uh, with the appropriate sort of referral. But it, I mean, is that the biggest issue you see, within the sort of medical system with respect to like musculoskeletal or in, in particular like spine care, if you will, like just people not knowing the appropriate like referral indications or is it deeper than that as far as, uh, you know, just musculoskeletal care in general?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, you're certainly correct that knowing who to send a patient to at the right time is part of this. But I also agree with what you said and that is there's something deeper here. So uh, my fellowship director and, and uh, one of my most important mentors right now is uh, Chris Standard. And he's been working on these issues for 25, 30 years now. Mm. And one thing he says is that, you know, with 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 spine care, you're either going to be the 15th of 30 doctors that a patient wow. sees or or you're going to be the doctor that is the last in the line who gets it right and who addresses the patient's needs. And so a big part of what we do is really trying to identify the patient's actual goal. And so, you know, uh, we want to treat people rationally right Mm -hmm. in a way that makes sense for them and their needs. And a lot of what we spend our day doing is cleaning up the disability induced by our healthcare system right now. Um, I think that there are ways that we can do a better job with this. And uh, one of those is asking the patient to be the center of their care and to identify the goals that are most important for them. So for example, in our clinic, we, as the physiatrist, we start by asking a very simple question, but it's different than a lot of clinics. And that question is, how can we help you? Mm -hmm. We don't say, where's your pain? We don't say, mm-hmm. tell me about your back pain, because half the time it's not their back pain that's actually the main issue. Right. And mm-hmm. so we open this door up for a conversation with them that they rarely get or haven't gotten yet in their healthcare seeking. And so, um, you know, we're, we're trying to tell the truth to patients and get them to trust us and sort of see what's possible for their future. And that's the avenue away from uh, disability or dysfunction towards some kind of uh, function or life that is meaningful for them.
1: So, yeah, you mentioned this sort of uh, disability and dysfunction kind of induced by the medical system itself. We, we talk about this quite frequently, you know, mm-hmm. for example, uh, people who are insufficiently active, uh, In general, when you ask them like why they're not being active, close to 40% report fear of injury, this risk of injury. And then when you ask them further, like, well, where did you learn that from? More than three quarters of them will respond, a healthcare provider. And it's kind of like, and that's just physical activity to exercise, right? You think about somebody who saw their uh, clinician, their primary care doctor for acute low back pain. Or osteoarthritis or some other sort of musculoskeletal pain. And if it was explained to them in a way, the doctor's obviously trying to do a good job, you know, but if it's explained in a manner that makes the patient think that they're fragile that they can't exercise, that they're broken, that there's some sort of unique anatomical cause for their pain symptoms and dysfunction, then that's an uphill battle for everybody else who's going to see them subsequently. You almost have to undo, it seems like, a lot of what they've previously been told. And I feel like if you're the 30th <laughs> healthcare <laughs> professional that somebody sees, it's like, yeah, so how do we undo years of this sort of learning that's that's been going on? Um, would you say that that's like... I mean, I'm just trying to think like with the biggest underlying problem, like from the, from the, you know, top down, like how do we, how do we get folks in a better position to not only utilize the resources that physicians like yourself, PM&R docs can offer, but also maybe even avoid the ne- necessity of like being referred to this level of care. It's not like you're gonna, you guys are going to go out of business and run out of patients. It's just <laughs> like I, my experience with the P- PMNR stuff uh, for referrals is like, yeah, this doctor can see you, but it's only going to be a few months from now or whatever because they're booked up. M- maybe due to this sort of our us shooting ourselves in the foot. Um, just when I say us, just the medical system in general. Do you think that's that's accurate, or or how do we make it better?
0: Yes, absolutely. And, uh, you know, there's a lot to be said about letting doctors work with patients that they're best suited to help, right? Mm -hmm. And so part of what this, our program is trying to do, and I know others out there, um, is get patients to that person, again, at the right time. And so, for example, surgeons want to see people they can help with surgery, that's, mm-hmm. their, that's their primary goal. Um, it creates a more efficient healthcare system when you don't have a three-month wait list for um, people that actually have a problem for which surgery is appropriate, right? Mm-hmm. And so we don't want patients that have, have that two weeks of low back axial low back pain um, going to see a surgeon first, right? right. That's, that's wasteful. Um, and so we want to try to minimize that and optimize the, the pathways through which patients uh, arrive at their various healthcare care professionals. Um, and so that's part of the value based care model, which is trying to optimize um, what we're spending on care with the outcomes we get. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's why, for example, I'm spending 30 percent of this year. We, on on health policy issues around spine and musculoskeletal medicine to better learn the underlying process through which we make decisions that are dramatically affecting our patients, sometimes in negative ways um, and sometimes in ways that might even ruin their lives. And so to undo that, it's not just a matter of following clinical guidelines, for example. It's more complicated than that. It's a way of rearranging or reorganizing the system as a whole, so that everyone's working towards similar goals again, or for the first time, and um, so I think that's where we are with this question. It's a, it's an important one.
1: Yeah, it's like the uh, the choosing wisely sort of campaign mm-hmm. has been around for. Uh, well, it seems like for, since I've been al- <laughs> alive, which is obviously yes. not, not true, but it seems like it's been around <laughs> for a while. And to our listeners, this choosing wisely campaign is a, a you know way to provide uh, high value care and avoid low value either procedures or tests that don't really add anything and may in fact harm folks. And in the case of like low back pain. Um, these guidelines are specifically recommending against getting an x-ray, a CT scan, MRI of the spine in cases where that's not sort of helpful. And so, I'm wondering, based on the patient population that you see, what percentage would you guess has had some sort of inappropriate imaging by the time they end up making it to you?
0: Yeah, a very large percent. And so, the you know, the way things should work is that early on, we are kind of minimalist in our approach, right? We see what the patient can do on their own. We try to empower them. Um, we, we set them up with clinicians like PTs who mm-hmm. are really able to educate and reassure and demonstrate um, that they're capable of performing certain activities safely, right? And do all those things. And then those patients who are refractory to all of that, they're the ones who should sort of get kicked to the next level. Mm -hmm. Right. And they're the ones where the guidelines don't suit us anymore. Right. Because guidelines are really built for that sort of um, generalized patient who's fairly undifferentiated. Mm -hmm. Um, But but there are patients that need to be escalated. And so if we are more diligent about getting patients um, good behaviorally focused care early. Um, I do agree that that's the way we should be doing things. That's the way we should go. Um, and it's going to take not just one profession trying to champion these ideas, right? Sure. We have to have the surgeons on board, the physiatrists on board, the anesthesia pain folks on board, the sports docs on board, the primary care docs on board, the PTs. We yep. have to have everyone on Trainers, board. Trainers,
1: etc. cetera. Everybody with the and, same sort of message, yeah. yeah.
0: Right. And critically, we've got to have the health system on board. Mm-hmm. That's the other side of this. And, you know, we usually don't talk about them when we're thinking about guidelines and, um, you know, guideline concordant care. But uh, the health system, the per- the person or the entity with the purse is where it really matters in driving a lot of this.
1: Yeah. I remember back to my intern year and, I you know, obviously low back pain is a very common uh, sort of complaint that that people will see a doctor for, even yeah. though the vast majority of individuals see in a primary care doc for a low back pain. So it's already a self-selected population of like, hey, this back pain is not only uncomfortable but also worrisome, right? Um, but in any case, I remember during intern year, I'd see a n- number of patients and uh, I was very aware of the Choosing Wisely guidelines, uh, mainly because my quality improvement project in medical school was about kind of not only appropriate imaging but appropriate exercise prescription. So just kind of like I was just aware, which mm-hmm. is half the battle. And so uh, I just remember, you know, kind of seeing these patients, evaluating them, et cetera, and then sharing my plan with my attending, you know, and in nearly all cases that I can recall offhand, I was not recommending, oh, they need to go get an x-ray or they need to go get a CT or you know MRI or whatever. And nearly every time I would get told, well, you know, you got to make sure they don't have a compression fracture. Uh, you got to make sure they don't have, you know, spondy or you got whatever. And I'm like okay, so this is actively like going against these sort of guidelines we have and actively going to, it's going to be low value care. And, but at this point, I'm just kind of a cog in the wheel and I can't really make that decision. It's, and so for our listenership, um, I think it might be useful just as a brief sort of review. If you were in the, in the boonies, you were functioning as sort of people's like first line sort of healthcare professional they saw and they came in, they said, doc, you know, I was exercising like I normally do, doing what you told me to, you know, and uh, now my back hurts. Yeah. What What is your sort of kind of, how do you navigate that on like an initial visit? Yeah, I think that would be helpful for our listenership as far as like, how does a physician who is highly trained, particularly in when things go wrong, start mm-hmm. thinking about this and like the initial sort of management? Because they hear it from Austin and I all the time, but I think somebody else who seen folks after they would, you know, go through us and we're like, and not really sure. Well, how do you think about this on like an initial visit?
0: Yeah, so we, we want to stratify based on the probability that something bad is wrong, right? And so mm. if someone comes in after a trauma, if someone has um, significant neurological change or um, symptoms that are suggestive of a severe pathology, that is going to trigger um, an escalation of investigation. Right. What sort of what sort of symptoms
1: are you sort of thinking about there just for? Yeah. So motor
0: motor loss, motor weakness, bowel and bladder changes, you know, sensory loss, things that shouldn't happen to someone who just has, you know, a musculoskeletal condition, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, sprain, strain um, or some other structural but relatively benign problem that has a favorable natural history because what we're trying to, to differentiate here are those conditions that have a very favorable natural history from those that do not, those Mm -hmm. that would end up badly for the patient if we did not intervene. Right. And so those are the patients we're trying to figure out and we can do a lot of that just on history alone, you know? So, um, that's, that's, that's pretty crucial. And, In the absence of significant neurological change or a history that suggests there was a trauma, um, we can safely guide a patient through um, a uh, graded process through which they challenge their body, right, in in safe ways to see how it responds in -hmm. the setting of the pain or dysfunction they may be having. And um, that's that's part of the early behavioral approach that I think everyone is is coming around to now that um, that we should really be employing. And so what that means is that if someone injures themselves um, and, you know, they say, "I, I can't bike like I used to or I can't lift like I used to, then we want to, you know, calm, calm them down to the point where they can begin moving in ways that are necessary to do that activity and then add the weight back, add the mileage back, you know, see how their body responds totally safe to do that. And that's where we lean heavily on our allied partners, right? Like our therapist to guide patients uh, in a, in a, in a way that's almost like a coach
1: Mm -hmm. through it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So you're not recommending bed rest or no
0: bed rest.
1: Yeah. We had a our, yeah. last, our last seminar. It was an individual who had um, a vestibular issue. Appar- apparently, it was not diagnosed. They just had symptoms of maybe a vestibular um, issue. And uh, their doctor had recommended three weeks of bed rest. Oh, and we're gosh, like, still, oh boy. Yeah. And so it's like, yeah. in general, I can't think of a condition that doesn't require either emergent hospitalization or like s- procedure or something, you know, the person's unstable and needs acute care where I would recommend bed rest entirely. Whereas yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure people listen to this are like, yeah, my doctor just told me to take it easy for a few days or, or a few weeks or whatever. And it's like, uh, I can understand their plight. You know, if you only have a few minutes with a patient and you're not really mm-hmm. sure exactly what to do. Um, it's tough, it's tough to, to engage in this sort of behavior change sort of counseling. And especially if you don't know, like, and here's my goal for you from an activity standpoint to like, get you back to, to where you were. So I can understand their pain, but also just telling people to rest is probably not what we want to do.
0: Yeah. And I think this is where, you know, having PTs more involved than we're traditionally used to is, is really helpful because patients can't just hear, you know, from their primary care physician that, you know, give it two weeks, lay off a little bit. And then let's see how you do. Patients need actionable information that they can use. They need some guidance, many patients, not all, but many need guidance as to what that looks like over that two weeks. And that's where a spine-focused physical therapist, for example, um, can come into play here. They can guide patients early on to make sure that they stay on the right path. And that they don't, you know, completely deactivate themselves or become fearful, for example, that they're going to hurt themselves. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. that's I mean, so that's why our uh, pain and rehab sort of division exists, because you want to think that, you know, again, most physical therapists or even in some cases, chiropractors can be, you know, active sort of professionals in the space. But then there's like a quality control issue, just the same thing you see in medicine. Right. And so you're like. Oh, boy, because uh, you can get you can get some bad information there, too. And so it's it's tough. But obviously, additional level of training tends to reduce that risk a little bit. So, yeah, these spine focused PTs and chiropractors and health coaches and stuff with the, their additional training are likely better on average to, to deal with this patient population. But, yeah, as, as always. We can't just say, yeah, if you see a PT, you're going to be good. Just any more that we could say, yeah, you see a doctor, you're going to be good. You right. need the right information at the right time delivered in a way that you understand. And as you said, it's actionable. Um, right. Which brings me to this question. So are you talking to your patients regularly about exercise? Is that something you do pretty often?
0: Every visit. Really? So Yeah. So there, so Chris Standard has these five things that he really focuses our visits around and and I credit him yeah, you know, this is similar to what a lot of folks are doing. It's similar to like lifestyle medicine, for example, mm-hmm. but he says, you know, all, all patients need some level of physical activity, mm-hmm. restorative sleep, appropriate nutrition, social connection. And he likes to add in purpose. You need a purpose to get out of your dysfunction, right? Or to come to the clinic and find some resolution to an issue that you have. Um, And so we spend a lot of time during our initial patient visits, identifying these with patients. I want to know about all five of them. And Mm -hmm. if you have a deficit in some area, even though I'm the physiatrist, the MD in this case, I'm going to care deeply about providing you with resources or information or avenues through which we can address them. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm very fortunate In my current clinic to work with a team where I have people I can lean on, but we lean heavily on them and we do address these things with patients. Um, And so, yeah, every single clinic visit with a new patient and our subsequent visits are oriented around seeing how successful we've been so far addressing those things with patients.
1: Yeah, that, that's actually really interesting. Um, I, I just gave a talk on exercise promotion in the clinical setting, and mm-hmm. so just to to for the listenership, just how rare that actually is. This, you know, even even screening folks for like, hey, how much exercise are you doing on average? It is so incredibly rare. Less than ten percent of all visits that people have with either their primary care doc or physical therapist have any sort of screening with, hey, are you, you know on act uh on an average day how many uh what sort of activities do you like to do and then how many minutes do you do them and do you lift weights like just standard three questions it's the exercise is a physical or sorry exercise as a vital sign sort of screening tool that doesn't happen that often and then further uh, most medical professionals are not aware of the current physical activity guidelines So uh, somewhere around 10 to 15% actually know that they exist. And of those 10 to 15%, less than half of them are actually recommending them to their patients. And you guys are doing it every single time. And that is incredibly rare. And so when you're talking to these patients who, again, have been self-selected, run through the medical ringer, chasing resolution to their dysfunction, Mm -hmm. how do they respond to that? You're, you're you're talking to somebody who's seen maybe ten other docs beforehand, who have either told them, yeah, you can't really move this way, or you're, you maybe you're broken, yeah. and you're like, so you uh you lifting weights, like what? <laughs> like how do they how do they respond to this? The, most of the time they're grateful, right? Mm-hmm. Because
0: they these are things that matter to them and that make sense to them, and even if they aren't sure where to start, the fact that someone within the healthcare paradigm has asked them this question means that it's important and that perhaps we have a way to address it. Uh, And so that's usually the response is that, you know, hey, thanks for asking this. No one's really focused on that before. There are a few places in medicine that are starting to do a a pretty good job with um, more of these lifestyle and behavioral aspects or dimensions to a patient. Uh, one includes like obesity medicine. I think mm-hmm. obesity medicine is starting to do a great job. Um, but spine care, this is a no brainer. We should be doing this. If you are a comprehensive spine clinician in any sense of the term, these things matter in terms of the trajectory uh, for a patient. And, you know, I, I don't like to say that Pain is caused by deficits in these domains, but pain is modified by them, right? And so there is the pain that people experience, there's the discomfort and dysfunction, and then there are the challenges that overlay that for a person. And we need to try to minimize the barriers for people and empower them and get them to a place where they can succeed. And that's what we're focused on.
1: Yeah, I think that actually that's a really nice pearl uh, there because, you know, many people, um, particularly if they come from like a strength conditioning background, exercise background, coaching background, they're like, yeah, pain in general, it's just a lack of strength, you know, so you just got to be stronger. And, and that's not really how we view pain, you and I, and, and certainly mm-hmm. uh, people in the space, um, but rather the gen- development of strength, uh, the, the particularly the recovery of strength that may be lost and and, and activity in general can modify That process and so both of those things can be true without it being like a direct correlation like oh if you lack strength you're gonna have pain (laughs) and gaining strength you know maybe reduces pain it's just it's a modification of kind of what's the experience that people are having that's kind of the best way i i've been thinking about it um the the other question so you're talking about exercise with everyone which again and i cannot stress this enough is so freaking cool like it just I've never heard that uh, from any other clinician because it's not happening. And, but you guys are, are keyed up on this. Um, do you guys talk about nutrition there as well? Are you guys doing that too?
0: We, we absolutely do. We talk about nutrition. We talk about weight management. We talk about weight loss and weight gain, and we have a nutritionist that we work with who's free in our program, by the way, it's excellent for patients, both our health coach and our nutritionist. Are free resources. That's a subsidy of our health plan um, that we worked in because we found it uh, valuable. And so nutrition is a hot topic for many reasons, but it is such a staple behavior that people can learn health management and maintenance through, right? So if someone can learn how to eat well and eat in a way that is you know, good for them, they can extrapolate, I think, those principles into other areas, right? Sure. Um, and so, you know, that includes physical activity, there's just so much connection between these different um, domains. And uh, nutrition is, is, again, one of those that we we ask every single time, accordingly.
1: Yeah, I think it's like a like a self efficacy thing. Like if you can empower a patient to make one behavior change that they maybe. It maybe uh, violates their expectation of like, I didn't know that I could have had this in me. And it's like, how does that, you know, apply to other aspects of my life, whether it's exercise, smoking cessation, sleeping enough, things of that nature. Um, Just to this, I didn't put this on the outline, but this is a question that just came to mind. Mm -hmm. If you look at like the sort of responses from medical professionals as to why they're not counseling patients on exercise, a few common threads consistently come up, either lack of time, uh, lack of knowledge on like how to prescribe exercise and then lack of personal experience and so the clinician almost feels like embarrassed like i don't not only do i not know what to do i haven't done it myself so it's like what do now obviously physical activity participation is complex as far as like access resources free you know all sorts of stuff you could just you could start with public policy and then you're gonna have to trickle it down uh i've had this thought that like in order to get this to significantly change with the background knowledge that for every it takes uh, a clinician they need to counsel 12 patients on exercise in order to get one who was insufficiently active before to not only start but also maintain an exercise level that is uh, in excess of the current physical activity guidelines at the 1 year mark so number needed to treat is 12 with that knowledge how do we get more physicians actually doing this it, do we just need to get all the doctors to lift and like exercise and <laughs> then they'll you know cuz that 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 crosses that problem off the off the the list but then they need to know about the guidelines they need to have access to some behavior change counseling either techniques themselves or referral i mean what do you think the biggest sort of lever to pull there would be
0: yeah and you know the effects of starting someone on exercise or an activity level that is meeting guidelines there are so many downstream positive effects to that right that, that that number needed to treat is low enough that you're right. Every single physician out there should be doing it and, and trying to have that conversation at some level. So at least from, for primary care, right. I, th- I do think we can use some of the alternative payment models that mm-hmm. are, that are coming around to incentivize it to, because what these incentives are intended to do is to prioritize Certain types of um, clinical behaviors among physicians in this case, right? Mm-hmm. And so, a great example is checking hemoglobin A1C on patients to make mm-hmm. sure we're not missing diabetes, which results in peripheral neuropathy and renal disease, and you know, um, all sorts of problems with end organ damage that that are catastrophic. Sure. And so, physical activity is such a mitigator of many um, of the negative uh, 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 health effects um, that we should be thinking about that in the same way, I think. And so, you know, incentivizing them with some of the uh, emerging um, shared risk programs, for example, in primary care is is a great idea.
1: Yeah, I I think about this like an EMR that has like a, it's like a checkbox thing or an alert So, for example, if you have a patient who's got any one of the sort of insufficient activity related disease processes, which (laughs) pretty much all of them, I can't think of a single, um, you know, sort of uh, pathology that we currently know about that isn't somehow positively influenced by sufficient physical activity. And so if you check yes to, for example, the patient, their BMI is, is elevated, for example, or their blood pressure is elevated, or they have frank hypertension, diabetes, whatever, a box comes up or a reminder hey you got to counsel this patient on exercise in order to like close out the visit i'm just like how do we get the number from you know less a very small fraction certainly less than 10 percent of primary care docs even talking about it to even 30 percent 40 percent i don't we're never going to get to 90 percent but it's like how do we even bump the move the needle forward and so yeah uh reimbursement emr stuff i don't know there's been a few countries um Sweden and France, for example, who have like mandated that doctors prescribe exercise to their patients in this thought like, yeah, we're going to move the needle forward. But it's less than 1% of patients who since this has rolled out have been prescribed exercise. And we're like, okay, so maybe mandating it, just telling people yeah, you got to do it is is, yeah. is not the way you got to incentivize it in some way and make it yeah. easy to do.
0: Yeah. And you know, in some way too, there has to be this idea that it's possible out there, right? And so,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, I mean, that's kind of the next step for the program for Spine Health. In fact, tomorrow there's this big meeting where we're viewing all the data from the last three years. And the idea is, you know, we want to publish this. And and the whole point of that, um, just like CFT, is to show the possibility of it,
1: mm-hmm. right? Like a feasibility and, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah,
0: and to prove to others that it can be done. And that's that's the case here, with primary care docs and spine experts and, um, you know, therapists and chiropractors who are in an excellent position to make sure patients hear this messaging, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah, I'm, I'm on board, man. We, we are working hard at, at trying to decode this.
1: Yeah. I like that. Uh, out of respect for your time, we had this whole question about this new restore trial and I'll, uh, I'll link that in the description below for interested parties, but we do this lightning round hot takes section because the listeners, they love the hot takes. I don't, I don't know what it is. I just, I think anytime you say something controversial, it just like explodes, like people want to hear that. So we'll uh, we'll talk about that. All right. So first up, we get this question all the time and we obviously have our stock answer, but I'm curious, Dr. Eubanks, what is your take on corticosteroid injections for low back pain? Yeah, yeah or nay <laughs> or like what's the
0: <laughs> <laughs> for 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 a low back pain nay. So, so right like steroids make sense when there is a specific target or there is a specific inflammatory issue, um a ridiculous pain problem, something that we can make sense of when we're talking about axial back pain just like surgery, injections generally do not work well for that. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think we have to own it. Unfortunately, when the incentives are off and you're incentivized to do lots of injections and maybe you don't have the patient population um, you know, to build out that injection clinic, then you're going to end up uh, expanding your indication, so to speak, uh, just like is a problem in all of musculoskeletal medicine. We want to be specific with our indications. We want to know why a specific treatment is being used and how it's going to help a patient. Um, I do think there's a role for corticosteroid injections, and um, I think that it just has to be judiciously evaluated uh, before you do it.
1: Yeah, so in general... I, yeah, and I'm in agreement. Obviously, I think the way that it works in some clinics is that, all right, you have low back pain, you go to PT, that doesn't work. All right, now it's time to inject you. If that doesn't work, then we're going to refer you to surgery. And that's, you know, and that's yeah. kind of the, the general care right. model. What would be if someone's out there listening to this, and they're like, hey, I've had this low back pain for, you know, eight weeks. I've been to PT. It's getting a little better, but I can't, eh, I don't know. Am like, am I a candidate for a steroid injection? Cause my doctors maybe offered it to me. What is like a, a, clear indication like, Hey, a steroid injection might actually be beneficial in this case. Um, is, do you have any like general, like a general rule of thumb there?
0: Yeah. If the pain is following a dermatome there you go. and it makes, and it corresponds to some structural issue on imaging, um, that would be appropriate to do at that time uh, because they weren't getting better with all of the you know initial um, uh, levels of care then it might make sense you know so my right L4 nerve root um, is being compressed and that's where my pain is you know that makes sense right that makes sense to go after that as a target but if you have like, low lumbar pain it's bilateral and there's nothing that uh, we can specifically attribute to it that doesn't really make sense to just put steroid in the body because steroid has potent effects that we should respect
1: yeah uh sidebar have you seen the youtube video the dermatome man
0: which i know yeah dermatomes are you mean highly variable and no no, no, no no uh I have not fun. seen Dermatome oh, okay. Man, actually. Dermatome yeah.
1: Man. Okay. So, my anatomy professor. So before I'll write I went it to, down. Well, I will sh- yeah. And I'll put it in the description <laughs> for the listeners at home. My uh, anatomy professor in medical school, Dr. Good Murphy, previously from University of Michigan, ended up at EVMS, and he was our anatomy professor. The dude made, you know, like one of those green suits that people sometimes wear or yes. like li- yep. all lycra. Well, he made a dermatome suit, and he okay. like got into it, and he makes a wrap it's not a good, he, he's not spitting bars. This is not a great rap, but it is funny and it is educational. And, uh, in any case, I had a lot of respect for how he was trying to educate folks <laughs> and it's just so funny. So anyway, if you, yeah, if you get a spare second, you want to laugh your, uh, I guess a S S3, four five off, you can, uh, yeah. you can check out Dermatome Man on, on YouTube. Um, yeah. okay. Next hot take question. We get this again, similar question we get all the time. What do you think about like PRP for just any sort of musculoskeletal pain indication. People will say, oh, I got knee pain. Should I get PRP? I got hip pain. Should I get PRP? Maybe like what is PRP? And then is this a good idea?
0: Yeah, so platelet-rich plasma, which has evolving definitions by what that exactly means because the you know concentration of the leukocytes and the plasma is different with different techniques. So the idea is that if you can concentrate some of these innate factors that are usually involved in the healing process and then inject them into an area where you have, um, an injury, like a tendinous injury, for example, Uh, sometimes osteoarthritis is even, um, implicated. The hope, the theory is that there are factors in that, um, you know, milieu that might (sighs) Promote healing, right? It sounds brilliant. It's it's natural. It's coming from the body. It's not a medication. Um, I'm underwhelmed by the evidence at this mm-hmm. point. I'm underwhelmed, yeah. and and I'm and I'm more concerned about the fact that you know it's out of pocket. It's not being generally speaking. It's not being covered by insurance at this point. It's very expensive. Um, <laughs> you know, the on the cheap end, we're talking about in the six hundred dollar range. Mm -hmm. right, for one time. And in many cases, they're doing this more than one time. Um, Thousands of dollars on the higher end with a lot of private clinics out there. But they're promising improvement over natural history for any kind of musculoskeletal condition that you can think of. So tendinous injuries, you know, osteoarthritis, like I mentioned, which is the entire population by the Mm -hmm. way. Right. Yeah. Um, so you, you have endless patients to offer this to, um, but the evidence has to meet a really high bar to make such claims. Right. And I think that we have yet to see this perform in a way that shows us it, it benefits a patient over the natural history of many of these conditions for which it's being used. Yeah. Um, you know, unfortunately, stem cell research is even worse than PRP. There's there's some, you know, PRP research out there that has people saying, well, maybe um, one of the problems that we have with PRP that, that we also have in neuromodulation, which is like, you know, spinal cord stimulation, that kind of thing, is that when a study comes out using a particular protocol or say concentration of PRP, then the proponents of that thing will say, well, they didn't use the right one. And they sort of, you know, uh, uh, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So you did it wrong or you didn't do the right concentration or whatever. So it's really hard from a research standpoint to satisfy a lot of the uh, demands of industry right now.
1: Yeah. And you think about the, the population of folks who are, you know, not only able to access stem cell therapy, but you know, and they'll do something weird, like, Oh, I'll go out of the country and get this, this thing done by the special doctor and whatever, and promises are made. And then the expectation kind of grows with that, right. Which is positively predicts their trajectory too. So you can't, it's really hard to separate those things out. Uh, rehabs
0: usually associated with it, you know, soon after.
1: Yep. Funny story. I was, I was actually on a date with a woman who she's in aesthetic medicine, right? So she's, uh, I guess Botox, filler, all that sort of stuff. Which, whatever, that's that's fine. She looks at me. She goes, "You ever, you ever considered PRP for your for your hairline?" And I was like, "What?" And she's like, "Yeah, you know, you'd spin it down, inject it right in the hairline, and you know, might be able to to grow some hair there." And I was like, "I don't even think PRP works for like musculoskeletal pain. Like, I'm not. I'm even further removed from." The evidence base on on hair stuff. So (laughs) and and then I asked her, I go just out of curiosity, like, what's the what's the cost on this? And she's like, oh, it's, you know, between six to eight hundred dollars per time would do it, you know, 10 times. And I'm like, wait, what? Like, I'd rather go bald. Anyway, that's, <laughs> that's a whole, yeah,
0: you gotta, you gotta get the vampire facial to go with it, you know, plump up those, uh, cheeks a little bit more. That's
1: right. I have a face made for radio with the absence of all these treatments. <laughs> um, okay. Last question on the lightning round. This is, oh man, I put this on an Instagram, ask me anything story and my DMS overfloweth not with love, but with more questions and maybe some, some hate. I, yeah. I said that gabapentin is not a like risk-free medication which is true of virtually any sort of medical intervention. And so just your your thoughts on gabapentin for for pain, for musculoskeletal pain.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, since the opioid awareness campaign, as I'll call it, the prescribing of gabapentin has just skyrocketed, right? Because Mm -hmm. the, so it's it's billed as this um, neuropathic pain agent, but it's indications like a lot of the other therapies that exist in musculoskeletal medicine that concern me in general, the indications are, are, are far too broad and well beyond what it's been studied for. So in a, in, you know, in one out of five patients with actual neuropathic pain, gabapentin seems to help, right? Not great. I mean, it's great for that one out of five. Um, but Lots of patients who don't have confirmed neuropathic pain or etiologies that are even remotely related to neuropathic pain are being prescribed gabapentin as this, you know, quote, opioid sparing agent. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that, oh, it's relatively safe and all that. But, you know, and especially in the elderly, it it has lots of adverse effects when it comes to somnolence and balance and um, fatigue And so we have to be aware of the fact that there are definitely adverse effects with gabapentin and it generally is not a great drug. The problem really that we have here is we don't have many great drugs for pain Mm. and that's our problem. But instead of just acknowledging that and and trying to, you know, work in a way that is respectful of uh, where we are right now with our available therapies. Um, you know, we're prescribing medications off label and we're using them in ways that we probably shouldn't, you know, another one that's, that's becoming more popular is actually baclofen. For oh, pain. really? Oh boy. Yeah. And so, you know, that's, that's a pretty significant and useful in, um, spasticity, uh, or patients that actually have, you know, neurological injuries. Mm-hmm. Um, we use it there and like spinal cord injured patients and brain injured patients, but, um, you know, your, your 40 year old who walks off the street with two weeks of back pain, you know, and a quote back spasm shouldn't really be getting baclofen, right? Because that yeah. has all sorts of adverse effects, as too. And the renal doctors hate it. So,
1: <laughs> oh boy, people, yeah, we're going to get some mail off this for sure. It's going to happen. Yeah, but- yeah,
0: we will. You know, now I understand, uh, you know, caveat is there are people that respond well to lots of things out there. Um, and it's not like I'm, I'm against anything, but I am for, you know, good evidence-based medicine and, and just uh, reasonable rational care. Yeah. And so that's the most important thing here.
1: Yeah. No, I think, I think that's perfectly acceptable. Um, I, i normally ask guests this question, uh, right at the beginning, but we'll do it at the end. Uh, you're current, are you currently exercising? You're currently training doing some sort of regular, what do you, what's your, what's your exercise kink of choice? I I like resistance training. I'm more
0: of a free weight person myself. Um, I I really I like the row machine.
1: Okay. You're, yeah. Are you my
0: aerobics?
1: You're you're lifting weights though. You're are you squatting, deadlifting, doing anything fun like that?
0: Yeah, I do. I do. I'm in the middle of moving, so I'm uh, I, I work at UPMC right now. I'm actually heading to the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston in a few weeks. After I wrap up my fellowship here, we're starting an academic PM&R program, the first in the state. Really excited about that. Take a lot of these ideas there and to a new population that needs it. Um, I'm actually keeping an affiliation with UPMC um, to work on these uh, exciting things I've discussed with the program for spine health. Um, And so, yeah, normally... I, I, I love resistance training. I I do more resistance training now. Actually, as I've gotten into my, you know, I'm, I'm like late thirties now about, you know, I'll be 40 this summer, but, um, love resistance training, love rowing. Nice. Um, yeah.
1: Well, well, until proven otherwise, we're going to say that you're the strongest PM and r doctor in the world. Uh,
0: (laughs) that's a a heavy claim.
1: (laughs) Well, it may be true. It may be true. We, I've not seen, uh, you know, maybe proportionally
0: I'm, I'm not a huge guy, so they say go. proportionally
1: How about that yeah uh so yeah like you said you're moving so if you end up in the charleston area and this sort of uh uh medical care seems like something that's up your alley if you're through the musc sort of uh, uh center you might be able to access dr eubanks work where, where else can people find you i know you're on twitter i don't know about your other social media uh, sort of work but uh, if people want to learn more about you your work your hot takes where uh, where can they find you
0: yeah, primarily on Twitter, J. Eubanks, M.D. Um, I've got that same username on Instagram. I, I That one's private. I've, I'm a little more selective, but I do have mostly healthcare type people and, and um, you know, fitness folks following me. And so um, those are the best places. I, I do a lot of hot takes on my Instagram. Because it's, <laughs> yeah, because it's private. Because it's more uh, private. <laughs> But, you know, I I like to engage with the community, both medical and therapy and chiropractic. And there, I want to say this, there are really good people across the board out there, right? So there are outstanding chiropractors. My most important, you know, one of my most important research mentors, a guy named Mike Schneider, um, who's a DC PhD here at Pitt. Um, He's been there ever since I graduated from chiropractic school. And um, there are great physical therapists out there doing amazing things. And there are great medical doctors and uh, DOs out there doing wonderful things, trying to make healthcare better for patients and the people that are part of it. So we all got to work together. Healthcare is a team sport now. That part is for certain.
1: And you know, if this medicine thing doesn't work out, politics may be for you, (laughs) you know, just... (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Uh, Yeah. Big, big thanks to Dr. Eubanks for joining us here on episode 225 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Links to all of his uh, social media handles and stuff are going to be in the description below. And thanks again for joining us. All right. That's a wrap on episode 225. Big shout out to Dr. Eubanks for taking the time to sit down with me. Make sure to check out our sponsors and the links in the description below. But before you go anywhere, Please leave us a five star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance and health and fitness. For everyone here at Barbell Medicine, we'll see you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast.